Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School. We're the region's leading graduate policy school and you can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm delighted once again to be joined by Jill Shepard as my co-host. Jill is a lecturer at the School of Politics and International Relations here at the ANU. She's got expertise in comparative politics, political behaviour, internet and politics and cricket as well. Hello, Jill. (laughs) Hello, Martin. So uh, it's good to have you on the pod again. Last week you said you were off to the match between Sri Lanka and Australia. I took a special interest. I noticed that Australia actually won this. How was it? Were you bowled over? Did people successfully run between the wooden things? They, they did. I can't believe you don't like cricket. Is this what I'm getting? I, I have an appreciation for it, but that doesn't mean I would sit and watch it. It was great. It was the first day of test cricket ever in Canberra. It was fantastic. Historic uh, occasion. It was important that I was there. We ran into a lot of our colleagues. Half the uni was at, was at Monica Oval on, uh, on Friday. It so, was brilliant. So there was a lot of research, academic research being done there, was there? A lot, a lot of collaboration. Well, speaking of great teams, as Australia clearly were, our newly created Facebook podcast gang, I'm doing the gang sign right now. How's that, Jill? I'm not doing the gang sign. Our newly created Facebook podcast gang has been growing over the past week or so. And if you haven't come on board yet, we would love to have you join as well. You can find us on Facebook. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. And in this space, you can chat with us. You can tell us what you want to discuss, get an idea about what happens behind the scenes, give us some suggestions for uh, future podcasts. And we've had some really good comments and ideas come through already. So please do keep them coming in. Um, And I want to introduce a new section into the podcast here. We're recording on a weekly basis. So I want to have a look at some of the kind of big policy issues that have played out over the last week. So Jill, what's one policy issue that's caught your eye over the last week? Well, Martin, you listed my research interests and I'm updating them at the moment to be uh, Australian politics, public opinion, cricket and franking credits. Franking credits. In the last week, I've learned what franking credits are because it's uh, taking over our national uh, political debate. So could you explain to our audience of economists what franking credits are? Okay. Please comment on all my mistakes uh, underneath the podcast link. So they are, if you own shares, you get often get paid dividends from the company in which you hold shares or the fund in which you hold shares. The fund or the company pays tax on the share on the dividends that you receive as part of your share ownership you can get reimbursed for that tax so you can get that tax that the com- company pays paid to you as a credit there's a lot of jargon involved here. What I know now is that it means that uh, for particularly self-managed uh, superannu- uh, superannuation fund holders, that they may be punished by, you know, in the area of sort of between 1000 and for some, you know, up- upwards of $20,000 a year if uh, Labor is elected. That sounds like a lot of money. With their tax reform. Well, it is, but these are people who are pretty well off. Now, I don't want to comment on the the uh, merits of the, the tax reform policy that Labor's taken to the election in either direction because I honestly have no idea really. But I just think it's interesting that we have these debates in Australia that are really esoteric with regard to tax policy and how and negative gearing or uh, home own, you know aspects of home ownership. No other country in the world talks about uh, tax policy and economic policy in this level of detail and I find it fascinating. As you know, I study public opinion. I think um, we we don't give voters enough credit across the board on a range of issues. And this is something where 
gee, Australians are sophisticated with what we can talk about and the kinds of policy discussions that we can handle. Now, whether the media is actually picking those up and talking about them in a nuanced and uh, informative way is another thing. But I just find it fascinating, the the complexity of things that we can talk about in Australia. Um, now that you know about Franken Credits, what are your... What are your thoughts on politics and news this week? Well, actually, the one thing that stood out for me is uh, is actually good two things. I'm cheating here. Uh, on Friday, there was the report came down from the Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin, which made some absolutely stinging uh, findings, um, particularly around the governance of the basin. And then earlier this week, we had the Banking Royal Commission, which uh, also made some very uh, strong findings against, particularly against the the big banks in Australia. And I don't want to delve into the findings themselves, but I'm interested, I guess, to pick your brains about what this says, these two findings, what, what these two commissions say about the state of governance in Australia. There was a quote from the Murray-Darling Basin Commission uh, inquiry report that said something to the effect that the commission was either unwilling or unable to act lawfully. And that just floored me. We're talking about a statutory authority, so an arm of government that has some independence from the the elected executive government, but an organisation that was either unwilling or unable to act within the law. That's pretty much their first job, is to act within the law. And and they were they they didn't do it, and when we think about the banks, you know, I think our our expectations for banks in Australia are fairly low, so we kind of have uh, managed expectations with regard to their you know criminality or or ethical kind of behaviour. Australians love to hate the banks, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I think for a lot of us, you know, we're a little bit blasé about oh well yeah the banks are awful we knew this all along what's going to have to come out though is is legislative responses and the government has said that they will respond to each of the 56 recommendations from the Hain Royal Commission uh, that's a lot of recommendations I, I don't know that they have the capacity to, to do that politically or or you know just in terms of the procedure of actually sitting enough days in the parliament so what we're seeing here is is a gap between our expectations of government and what they're delivering. And that gap is widening. And we know this. This is coming out in in public opinion polls and in the more kind of in-depth survey work that we do here at the ANU. We are expecting less and less of our governments and they're still not providing that. And that is what we call a secular trend. It's not Labor. It's not Liberal. It's not partisan at all. It's just government generally. They can't They can't uh, perform to the... Uh, to the level that we expect of them. Now, that's really problematic. Do you think that these royal commissions might actually lead to lasting change? Or is it more a case of, you know, we'll just wait until the dust settles and then we'll carry on with business as usual? Uh, I think we'll see uh, criminal convictions in the case of the banks and that there'll be uh, plenty of individuals who get sort of hived off as maybe not scapegoats, but as certainly um, sacrifices to the the Hain Royal Commission gods. In the case of the Murray-Darling Basin, there's there's a lot more that needs to be done because this is, and, and you know, and foreshadowing foreshadowing our topic for the uh, pod today. This is about governments cooperating. This is about regionalism. It's about a level of intergovernmental agreement that we are not used to in Australia. The Murray-Darling Basin Commission has all kinds of governance problems. But at heart, we still have this problem of Queensland wanting water that South Australia wants. And as, uh, until we can get over that problem, you know, there's, there's systemic uh, inability to actually feed environmental flows down into South Australia. So uh, there's very little response from either the government or uh, the opposition at the moment on uh, precise responses to the Murray-Darling Basin Commission uh, report. But look, we'll see. And a lot of this, we're in a holding pattern too, right? If there is a May election, then maybe this is uh, maybe this is something for June and July, and we just hope that it's still on the agenda by them. That that requires um, civil society, it requires stakeholders to keep pushing these issues because I think government in Australia are pretty happy just to uh, let things go by the by. 
Well, there you go. You've heard what we think are some of the kind of key issues that have played out over the last week. And we're going to be trying to do this every week. So if you've got any thoughts about things that you would like us to discuss, please do get in contact on all the ways that you can normally get in contact with us on Twitter as Apps Policy Forum, on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, uh, or just zip us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. We are really keen to get your thoughts. So on last week's pod, we discussed Australia's environmental performance and the need for an integrated climate and energy policy framework, something that's not just important for Australia, but also crucial for the country's neighbours. Because in Australia's neighbourhood, there are around 11 million people living in Pacific Island nations that have increasingly come under threat from climate change and resource scarcity. And with rising sea levels eating away at their coasts, uh, heart disease and diabetes prevalent and shrinking fish stocks threatening food security, Pacific Island governments have a particular interest in working together and joining forces to influence the global policy debate. So today on the pod, we're taking a look at regional cooperation between Pacific Island nations and how they go about coping with economic development, globalisation, the costs of these non-communicable diseases and the very damaging effects of climate change. And we really want to know how can Pacific Island nations work together better to ensure a sustainable future with food security and healthy populations? And can their shared interests create a common stance to better influence world policymaking? And we have got a fantastic lineup of guests to discuss these questions, haven't we, Jill? We've got a great lineup today. We've got Dr. Colin Tonga, who's the Pacific Community Director General. He's previously worked as an Associate Professor of Public Health and the Head of Pacific and International Health at the University of Auckland. So his specialty is in public health in the Pacific and in non-communicable diseases. So he talks a lot about this today in, in the interview that we've, we've done with uh, our three guests. He's in Canberra to give this year's ST Lee lecture here at the ANU. We'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Uh, next, we've got uh, Dr. Matthew Dornan. Matt's a research fellow and a, dire- a deputy director at the Development Policy Centre here in the Crawford School. His research focuses on economic development in the Pacific Islands. He's specifically interested in labour mobility. And again, this is something that we talk about, something that's so important for the Pacific region. And finally, Professor Meg Keane, who's an Associate Professor in the Department of Pacific Affairs at the ANU. She has a background in resource management, regionalism, development, and security in the South Pacific region. Uh, She previously worked in the Office of National Assessments for the Australian Government. And I like anyone that has a a pre-academic background in something else because I do. So I feel like uh, Meg's a uh, a friend already. Before we get to that, a quick reminder to you all to get in touch with us. You can reach us via Facebook with our Facebook group Policy Forum Pod on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum or zip us over an email podcast at policyforum.net and stick around after the main interview because we're going to be going over some of your questions and comments uh, about previous podcasts and about pieces that we put up on our website policyforum.net but for now let's meet our guests. Well, thank you so much to all of you for joining me. Colin, hello. Hello. Meg, hello. Good morning. And Matt, how are you? Good morning. Well, thanks. All right. So I'd like to start this by talking about the framework for Pacific regionalism. Uh, From climate change to non-communicable diseases, Pacific Island nations are facing some really significant challenges to their development and prosperity. And in 2014, Pacific leaders recognising this need for deeper regional integration between the island nations replaced the Pacific Plan with a new framework for Pacific regionalism aimed to address sort of strategic issues such as sovereignty, pooling resources and uh, delegation decision making. So Colin, perhaps I've got start with you. Looking back at the past few years, what has been achieved through this framework? Well, I think the most important achievement has been the focus that the uh, framework has offered to the multitude of players in the region, the funders, the development partners, the countries, the NGOs, you know, there's a whole host of uh, of people. And what the framework does is offer a a structure for these uh, conversations. The second important thing, I think, is the inclusivity of the framework. By that, I mean, we now have the uh, civil society uh, sector, 
participating annually in the discussions of the leaders with the leaders and the private sector, something that perhaps wasn't uh, a big part of um, the previous uh, conversations. Uh, the third thing I want to say about the framework is that I think people need to be a bit more patient. Uh, when the leaders passed the framework, they did point out that this was a decades-type project. This wasn't a quick fix to the, re the problems of the region, and I think that's really important. Having said that, there's a whole multitude of activities uh, that go on um, underneath the highly visible uh, parts of the framework, such as uh, regional uh, economic integration. I mean, that's the tricky one, but there's a lot of collaboration, cooperation on technical projects uh, in the region on various uh, things. But I think the challenge is uh, regional economic integration. Some of the island members, particularly the small ones, are not so sure that this is a good thing for them. They might lose uh, their sovereignty, lose their voice. They might get uh, uh, pushed over by the big uh, players. And so integration has not progressed as people had hoped. In other words, there isn't a likelihood of a common market in the short term, I don't think. Uh, nor a common currency, nor any of those things that people had hoped would occur. But that's not to say that uh, nothing is happening because, as I say, there's a corporation in a number of uh, areas. So certainly some frustrations as well as some successes. Meg, what's your take on that? What, is, what, are, what have been the achievements or challenges uh, for the, uh, the framework over the last few years? I think importantly, it's narrowed the scope of the regional activities. So in the past, the Pacific plan that you referred to uh, was almost a shopping list for donors. It was very diverse, a lot of different issues, and the agenda was too big to deliver on. And, and the review made that point. So now we're focusing on a very discreet number of topics that then allows some traction and a better basis, I think, for collaboration and cooperation. So I think that's been important. As Colin said, it's more inclusive so that we have a greater interaction with a wider variety of people. And that's because of the process of setting the agenda is allowing people to put in their submissions about what is important. And that's been, I think, uh, an important aspect. And then this whole integrating theme of the Blue Pacific has come up. And I think that has real resonance in the region. Uh, over 90% of this region is ocean. And it's fundamentally important to the livelihoods of these people. So it's really given a high profile to the oceans, uh, the impacts the oceans are feeling from both climate change, but economic exploitation and their role in the future as a very big positive if managed well. Matt, what's your read on it? I mean, despite the frustrations, has this been a step up on the previous agreement? I mean, I think so. I think um, the problems with the Pacific Plan were, were clear to everyone. It did have too many priorities. Um, it did, or it was to a large degree, driven by um, by bureaucrats within the regional organisations. So I think the that idea of actually narrowing the agenda um, giving leaders more of a voice um, was a good one. And I mean, it's hard to disentangle these things. Um, there's um, There's been a lot of talk of the, the new Pacific diplomacy where Pacific Island countries have really um, set the agenda um, in a more robust way than was previously the case. Um, I think the, the, the new framework for Pacific regionalism has played a part in that. But of course, there are other factors such as um, uh, the greater attention paid to climate change. Now, I want to stay with you. One of the one specific goal of the plan was to lower market barriers and enable a freer movement of people and goods. Looking back over the last few years, has any progress been made in that space? So I guess um, the the negotiations um, around the Pacer Plus agreement um, have now been concluded. Um, the announcement um, of the conclusion of those negotiations was greeted with some um, scepticism um, in the region. Um, the two biggest economies, PNG uh, and Fiji, um, did not 
take part. Um, but uh, I mean, my own view is that that um, that wasn't so much of a surprise. Um, those economies are very different to, to the smaller island economies. So I think in some ways it makes sense for them to actually negotiate separate agreements with Australia and New Zealand. Um, notwithstanding that, I think it's fairly clear that Pacer Plus has not lived up to the expectations. It was always billed as um, more than just a trade agreement. Um, you know, it was a development cooperation agreement. Um, sure, um, there, there are development funds um, included in the in the um, in the agreement, but um, it's it's I think that really sits to the side, and the the focus has been on trade. Um, what um, what Okta and, and Pacific Island countries negotiating um, the agreement always wanted was um, provisions on labour mobility, and there has been been great progress on accessing um, labour markets in Australia and New Zealand, but they're quite. Uh, they're separate to the Pacer Plus Agreement. Um, and that, of course, means that they can be changed by the governments of Australia and New Zealand um, should there be um, a, a change in their views. So I, I think in that respect, um, it's rather disappointing. Can I jump in here? There's something that Colin mentioned and you know, was about this sort of equality of all the partners in, in the new Pacific Plan, uh, sorry, in the new uh, framework. But Matt, what you've just said is that uh, Australia and New Zealand have this sort of veto player role that they can withdraw support for any of these any of the aspects of the economic integration that doesn't seem particularly equal yeah I mean I guess that, so we're talking about two different things the framework for Pacific regionalism is separate to the pay okay. plus uh, agreement but but always this is a challenge with Pacific regionalism the fact that Australia and New Zealand um, are members of the forum that yep. they're clearly the the two largest economies by far uh, in the region um, so how they can be included in the discussion without being too um, overbearing yep. um, uh, you know th that has been an ongoing issue it was um, very diplomatic <laughs> but also recognize the interests across the Pacific are very diverse and what they're trying to get out of regionalism will be different. You've got countries of 10,000 people mm. and then millions of people. You've got countries with very rich resources and then those with very limited resources. So you have this huge diversity. So you're going to expect uh, these challenges coming through when you try and do regionalism and integration. There's going to be an unevenness about it and there's going to be varying priorities and interests. That's just inevitable in the nature of this uh, rather large and very, very diverse region. On that, I'm finding this so interesting. So Colin, was a common currency ever really an achievable goal, given what Meg has just pointed out about the incredible uh, diversity, or I was going to say heterogeneity, but that's a very sort of academic jargony term, across these nations? Well, I think a few examples were offered in the development of the framework as to what might be incremental steps. One of them was a common currency because yep. I suppose people uh, felt that maybe a common currency is not as threatening as uh, something else uh, that require people to give up their sovereignty. A common uh, a common court, high court, supreme court was another oh, wow. idea. The, these were ideas that were suggested. But just to go back to the membership, um, the concerns about Australia and New Zealand and their influence on the rest is uh, uh, there's another dimension to this, the smaller island developing states like uh, Tuvalu and Nauru and others um, have the same concerns about the bigger members within the group. Mm -hmm. So uh, Fiji has too much uh, say and everything happens in Fiji and Papua New Guinea. You know, so it's a common, it's not just an Australian-New Zealand thing. It's a, it's one of the real concerns um uh, for the whole uh, community in terms of uh, do we or do we not, how far do we go with the uh, regional economic uh, integration, mm -hmm. given that the, the the resources and infrastructure in uh, Fiji, uh, Papua New Guinea and others are always going to be superior and they're going to dominate. Uh, so it's, a, it, it's not just an Australian-New Zealand uh, issue. I just don't see uh, economic integration in whatever form happening in a hurry because I think uh, – I'll talk today about solidarity and what the essential ingredients might be such as, uh, you know, good regional leadership as opposed to a, a national leader with uh, prominence who is not really – 
advocating for the whole region, but rather for his or her country. Some something not not surprising, I suppose. Uh, and the issue of trust and confidence is uh, is going to be a big one. This sounds to me, listening to what you're saying there, Colin, a little like some of the question marks that we hear coming up around the European Union. I was wondering when you were going to make this about Brexit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to touch on Brexit. Brexit. But, you know, it does sound like, you know, some of the challenges that they're having around economic union, around the integration of a, of a single currency, is the kind of pushback the, the in the Pacific being just at the policy political level or has there also been some anxiety amongst people around this sort of push towards greater regionalism? I think it's largely at the leadership, policy, political officials level. I think, to be honest, the average uh, person in the islands too busy catching fish and planting yam to be concerned about regionalism and is it a good thing or not such a good thing. In other words, I think there's a real issue with awareness in the region, in the population about these uh, regional developments. It's not something that people uh, engage with on a day-to-day basis. People are too busy doing real-world uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. It's obviously different from Australia and New Zealand where people do participate in the processes of government and so on. Uh, so that's my guess. Uh, um, there's clearly a lot of work to be done in terms of uh, awareness amongst the general population about these issues. I rather suspect that people um, are reluctant to give up their national and their sense of identity over some obscure phenomenon that may or may not deliver any any real benefits. I think you'd be surprised, Colin, that a lot of Australians don't really care about the day-to-day work of government either. They're too busy getting along with their own lives. I want to talk about regional leadership in the context of climate change and talking about trust and confidence and I guess the capacity of a good regional leader to uh, help uh, regionalism and integration along the path. Uh, In 2015, we all remember Peter Dutton being caught on camera joking about the impact of climate change in the Pacific Islands uh, in that he said, time doesn't mean anything when you're about to have water lapping at your door and then followed that up with some fairly cynical chuckles. Um, I want to ask everyone's opinion on this, how that was perceived within the academic communities and and the um, Pacific communities and whether the, uh, I guess, whether the Pacific Islands really believe that Australia cares does it? Is there a sense that Australia has the Pacific Islands back here? We might start with you, Matt. I mean, clearly it wasn't uh, wasn't taken very well um, <laughs> in the region. Uh, you know, I think it did raise eyebrows, um, including among Pacific Island leaders. You know, I think I think climate change really has been the Achilles heel in Australia's um, engagement with the Pacific. Um, so particularly over the last year, Australian leaders ha- have made a real effort to to engage with the region. And, um, well, I, I won't go into the reason, reasons. Maybe we can discuss that later. But, um, you know, I, I think despite that, and, you know, I, I welcome greater engagement by Australian leaders with the Pacific. I do think there has been a neglect um, of the region. Um, but at the same time, the fact that Australia has its, the Australian government has its stance on, on climate change, um, that really makes meaningful engagement very difficult because this is a, an existential um, issue yep. um, for Pacific Island leaders, um, particularly those of the atoll states. So it doesn't matter how many dollars you throw at the region, it doesn't matter how how many times you visit it, if you don't engage on issues around climate change, it's very difficult to, to have a um, a constructive dialogue. That's, that's really interesting. I'm going to want to come back on the issue of dollars later in the pod. Meg, Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, keeps talking about when well, we started talking about the Pacific family. Does that that doesn't help to overcome these sort of, you know, as Matt says, existential failures on engagement with climate change? Well, I think those are words, and action <laughs> is what 
matters, right? How you look after your family. What are you actually doing? So we have this barrage of activities with the step up, but it's a bit early to see how that's going to play out on the ground. It will matter. I mean, the comments you were talking about, the recent OECD report that's been in the paper saying it doesn't look like Australia is going to meet its commitments. That's obviously a worry for islands that are the most, some of the most vulnerable countries in the world. But on the other hand, uh, there's a need for a lot of partnership and assistance, and that's going to matter. So how are you helping with when the impacts are going to come and they're going to be more severe and they're going to be more frequent? What is your family or what are your neighbors doing to help you out? Now, to be fair, Australia puts a lot of uh, its donor funds and assistance into uh, adaptation and preparedness for disasters. And a number of the announcements are about that type of assistance. So if it makes a difference on the ground, that matters to the person who gets hit by a cyclone. Is it making a difference? I think it has. I mean, we're, we're one of the first responders after cyclones and tsunamis and all sorts of climatic events. Uh, We do have the maritime and naval facilities, which get in there quickly, and they help to coordinate. The problem with these disasters, and I'm sure Colin can talk more about it, is there's a very fast response initially, and then everybody fades back, Mm -hmm. and a family's there for the long term. You need to be there after that disaster for the three, four, five years it's going to take to recover your homes, your water, your food system. That's what will be judged on, uh, and I think that's where we really need to step up is in that partnership as well as our own actions, obviously, internationally. And I do want to ask Colin that. What can the Pacific Islands do when Australia and New Zealand either don't turn up, they're not the first responders, or they they trickle away? Oh, I think Australia, New Zealand, France uh, are always the first responders mm-hmm. in this part of the world. There's never – you look at these major disasters in the last uh, few years, the Australian uh, Defence Forces in there big time early on. So there's no question about that, I don't think. But as uh, Mick says, you know, the, the issue is when the uh, uh, um, visibility dies down, people go on and do mm. it to the next thing. SBC is still there, by the way. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's important to point out that uh, – Australia is one of our largest uh, funders and we at SBC are involved in adaptation, mitigation, food security work, water security, uh, public health, a whole range of things funded by the Australian uh, government, which appears to me to be a disconnect between the politics and the day-to-day stuff. So uh, people in the Pacific, for example, a bit grumpy that Australia and New Zealand are not the big brothers that they're supposed to be in the family and to give the little guys a hand, uh, they could do more, I suppose. But actually, if you dig underneath, they fund us, Australia and New Zealand, fund us to do a whole lot of things that address uh, climate change. So that's what I mean by a disconnect between the politics mm. and and the day-to-day uh, stuff because uh, Australia does spend uh, and achieve quite a bit through and, and with us and, and indeed other regional organisations. Mm. Can I just return to something that Matt talked about and Peter Dutton's comment? <laughs> Matt, you mentioned there was some consternation from sort of regional leaders in the wake of that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Comment. Colin, you are one of those regional leaders. <laughs> well, how, how did hearing Pete and Dutton say that make you feel? What was your response to that? Well, I think uh, the response was one of disappointment. Uh, uh, influential person uh, making statements uh, that will have impact and not actually being fully aware of the of the situation. I mean, it's a concern shared with everybody else who's, who's skeptical about climate change uh, because mm. it's real and people's lives are being affected and villages are being relocated. And, you know, so for when influential people like others further north 
make statements like that, of course people are going to be uh, disappointed. And I want to say again, I think there's a general disappointment in the region with both uh, Australia and New Zealand because if you talk about family, you talk about everyone helping everyone else and and Australia hasn't perhaps stepped up to the mark that people had hoped. New Zealand has uh, changed in more recent times and that's uh, encouraging for, for people. I'm really interested in that difference between words and actions. And I, I wonder, Colin, while we're putting you on the spot, was what Peter Dutton said uh, more or less disappointing than when Melissa Price, the Environment Minister, said to uh, Auntie Tong, the former Kiribati president, I know why you're here, it's for the cash. Yeah, I think that's uh, really offensive, that latter statement. More offensive than disappointing. Uh, I, I suspect so. I think that's... people, I mean, without talking about specific individuals, I might get into trouble. <laughs> I think in a way the the bigger mentality that was sprung on Mr. Tong is extremely uh, disappointing for people because uh, it's obviously a conversation that involves a whole lot of stuff rather than money. And Mr. Tong, President Tong, was one of the key champions on mm. climate change in the region. And for someone to make a statement like that to Mr. Tong, I think it was, it was, it was dreadful. And when we talk about trust and confidence, they're not strong signs of trust and confidence. No. I want to turn now to another big issue affecting the Pacific, which is public health. Uh, Non-communicable diseases such as heart disease, cancer, chronic lung diseases and diabetes are the leading cause of death in the Pacific Islands. Something like 70-75% of all deaths uh, in the Pacific Islands can be attributed to these. DFAT is supporting governments in the Pacific to help them improve health outcomes uh, as they recognise that because the island nations are small and dispersed, these sort of good health services can be hard to come by. Can you tell us about some of the ways that Australia is helping the Pacific Island nations to battle these types of diseases? Australia, New Zealand and others are funding SBC and WHO and others uh, to um, develop a number of programs. There are two parts to this. One is to encourage local production consumption to get people to go back to fresh fish and uh, taro and staples instead of rice and flour. Uh, and then there's the bigger issues of uh, imported uh, processed uh, foods, which is really the issue in the region. People are sucking on soft drinks and uh, rice and noodles and tin fish and all that, all that stuff. And that's clearly the the issue. Uh, it involves uh, trade, uh, and it involves uh, awareness and, and programs uh, for communities policy. Uh, better treatment, better access to drugs, um, anti-smoking uh, policy, uh, tax on soft drinks, tax on, you know, there's a whole uh, range of stuff in Australia in some areas uh, have been leading the interventions in communities and, you know, food uh, programs in schools, for example, and in communities. So a lot, uh, Australia funds a, a lot uh, at least uh, as far as I know, through SBC. And they will have uh, direct uh, bilateral support in all of the countries uh, as well. I think also importantly, the most recent one on uh, or one important aspect is the quality of the medical, the medicine coming into the region and assisting with some of that testing. So you're sourcing medicines from all around the world and uh, you want to ensure quality and that people are getting the medicines they think they are and they're having the impact and the effect that they should. And so there's an initiative that's recently been announced where we will, Australia will assist with that quality assurance. And I think that will will be a value in the region as well. Now, I, on this pod before Christmas, uh, thought I was being very cute and provocative when I asked, why should Australia give money to the Pacific anyway? That we are taxpayers and what's the justification for money going offshore? Now, I was obviously being contrarian and I feel very chastened today as we talked about, you know, things like drug testing, Meg, that's incredibly important. This is obviously a priority for Australian development, uh, for Australian, uh, Australia's age, aid budget. Uh, at the end of last year, the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, promised a $2 billion infrastructure financing facility for the Pacific. We have a lot of ongoing funding agreements with the SPC and with individual countries. Uh, Matt, what's, what's your opinion about whether this uh, development money actually helps tackle issues on the ground? Are we spending money well? 
I mean, I think generally speaking, we are. Um, you know, one can always point to an example of uh, an aid program that hasn't been effective. That's fun but, to do, though. Uh, <laughs> well, and it's done very, very often in the media. But, but I think, um, you know, overall, um, the the aid program um, is evaluated regularly. Um, it has a, a robust evaluation framework, um, and we know from that that um, individual projects and programs um, are achieving their objectives. We've also, you know, there's been a lot of public opinion surveys about what the Australian taxpayer wants to do. Um, And generally speaking, um, Australian taxpayers believe that we spend far more on foreign aid than we actually do. Correct. And uh, in terms of what is spent, overwhelmingly the Australian taxpayer wants aid money to be spent to combat poverty. Um, yep. It's not about um, supporting Australian business or, or even Australia's um, strategic or geopolitical interests. So, you know, I, I think a realistic conversation um, uh, should acknowledge that the Australian taxpayer supports um, aid that combats poverty, um, helps people to access health and education services and so forth. And if we look at evaluation data, um, mm. the, the evidence is clear that um, aid is being spe- spent well. I think there's a sense in Australia that it's being targeted more uh, carefully now, and that you know, uh, not to buy into this sort of rhetoric of the family too much because it doesn't really mean anything if we're not actually uh, delivering on the ground. But there is a sense in Australia, I think, that it is our backyard. These are our neighbours and our friends, um, and so it's nice to see that connection, I guess, between the rhetoric and the policy. Meg, earlier you talked about the importance of the ocean in the Pacific and and what we might call the blue economy that. Um, something that binds the Pacific is also something that is uh, fundamental to economic growth in the Pacific. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think that's uh, a classic example where regional activity makes sense. Fish don't stay within national boundaries. They move around. Tuna is a pretty good example of that. So collective action matters. For some of these small island states, you know, a third of their GDP is dependent on the tuna fishery. It matters that these fisheries are managed well. And then you have the money for health, education, and all those things. And to be honest, it's, it is probably the best managed tuna fishery in the world. Uh, it supplies a large portion of the world's, about in the Pacific Island countries, again, about a third of the world's tuna comes from there. So, yes, it's important for the islanders and it's important for the, the world, too, that this tuna is managed well. Uh, there's economic benefits for the countries and they have been very successful in managing these tuna fisheries so that they've increased the return to their economies uh, from the fisheries uh, by a huge amount, like six, seven times fold from from about seven or eight years ago. So this has been a huge success, uh, really important as well when we start to talk about climate change and mm. the economy and livelihoods are the coastal fisheries. They're not as well managed. Uh, they're complex to manage because most of them are under customary uh, tenure, not under national governance. But if you want to know where the crisis in the future lies in the Pacific, these coastal fisheries are key. They're supplying in countries anywhere between 50 to 80% of the protein. So imagine if those coastal fisheries collapse. That's sustenance. That is Mm. your protein source. So we really do need to focus on these coastal fisheries. Uh, We have to think critically about the trajectories of climate change. They will be degraded. It's kind of a reality no matter what we do because it's in, it's the external pressures on them. So how do we handle that? Can we diversify the food sources? Can we diversify the economies? Can we adjust the coastal fisheries, artificial reefs, uh, fads, these uh, artificial devices where the, the, the fish can congregate? What are we doing? And, and this is where if we're really family, we need to be working and are working mm-hmm. very closely with the islands to really critically analyze where the risks are and how we're going to respond uh, because that's key to poverty, that's key to health, and that's key to the future of the Pacific Island countries. I mean, that's a classic collective action action problem, that if everyone dips into this common pool of fish, then there'll be no fish for anyone. The ones that migrate, uh, that's certainly true. So the, the tuna fish, you have a problem of the commons, but actually... Yeah phenomenally well managed in the Pacific. It's the world leader in tuna management. Uh, And then 
uh, organizations like the SPC are working on coastal fisheries, and I'm sure Colin has something to say about that, and partnering with Australian agencies like ACR to really critically think about these issues. But we don't have a lot of time. Things are moving quickly, and mm. if ecosystems collapse, they're very, very difficult to bring back again. But Colin, do you want to add to Oh, that? just on the uh, tuna fisheries, uh, all but uh, one uh, species of tuna in pretty good shape. We mm. do all the science and stock assessment, so uh, world-class uh, scientific work from SPC, which everyone uses to make decisions on, except the big eye, the uh, Japanese uh, favorite. That's uh, marginal. And our advice has always been to lay off uh, big eye tuna. Okay. But for the most part, uh, it's being well managed. Uh, Australia puts in a lot of money into the Foreign Fisheries Agency with uh, patrol boats and uh, aircraft surveillance. Uh, they do support uh, the tuna surveillance work in the region big time. On coastal fisheries, yes, uh, I, I guess we, I used to say, we've been focused on food security for the rest of the world and neglected food security for the Pacific. Mm. So more recently, we've uh, developed uh, programs for sustainable management of the coastal resource. Um, this is what people rely on uh, for the most part, uh, but it's overfished, overdone. Too many people on coastal areas relying on the sea. So yep. we've had to put in place with those communities measures to try and conserve uh, fish and marine life. But uh, the experts tell me regardless of what we do, there's not going to be enough wild fish uh, to sustain uh, Pacific communities. So we have to look elsewhere. Uh, for example, aquaculture. Okay. Uh, uh, prawns, uh, tilapia, rabbitfish, uh, and proving to be reasonably successful in the islands uh, as a supplement. And we've signed recently a, a fairly substantial program with the European Union to help us help the countries uh, manage their coastal f uh, fish uh, resource uh, more sustainably. Remember, climate change is just going to make life more difficult mm -hmm. than it already is. So this is a, a really important uh, development for us. It, it's uh, one of the most important pieces of work for us at the Pacific community. I mean, regionalism is showing a lot of signs of success, though. So if we can maybe uh, finish on a, a slightly positive note, I'll start with Matt. But to all of you, if you could give policymakers across the Pacific one piece of advice on how to better tackle development issues and, and the problems that we've talked about today, uh, what would that be? I mean, I guess I'm an economist, so I will focus <laughs> my my answer on, on the economics. You know, I think um, particularly for the smaller island states, there are immense challenges um, ahead. Um, you know, growing population. Kiribati is a case in point. A rapidly growing population, uh, limited resource availability, limited land availability. Um, so I would say that for those countries, um, they should be looking um, overseas uh, at what opportunities are available. There has been headway made in terms of labour mobility arrangements. Um, I think really that is the the future for those countries. Um, we already have many examples of, of small island states that have done quite well um, out of special arrangements um, with um, larger developed economies like, such as Niue. So, um, you know, I, I think um, looking to those opportunities, um, trying to ensure that their um, citizens um, are able to take advantage of those opportunities. Mm. Meg? So I'll go for a different angle. Uh <laughs> I think it's the people-to-people -people connections. I think it's how we share information, how we support each other, how we support education. Uh, we haven't talked about cybersecurity, the new digital age. That's going to be all about transferring understanding about how you monitor, evaluate what's going on, but also how you support it. That's livelihoods. That's the future. And we have to make sure the next generation is prepared for that. It goes to this labor mobility, which has already been spoken about, but that's people-to-people -people relationships. The things that really make labor mobility work well is when you get communities close with each other and, and you get a sense of trust about who's coming, who's doing the work, and then reciprocal relationships when there are disasters or other things going on. So we need those exchanges. And then that deals with the kind of thing you're talking about where people are skeptical about poverty or why Australia should be mm. in the region. Once you know the region and you know the people and you know the challenges that are there and you know what Australia could offer, 
should the partnerships be strong, the information flows be strong, then that's got enormous potential. And I think that's a really important platform we should never forget with the all the other things that are important, you know, infrastructure, dollars, et cetera. In the end, people are the, the key to, yep. to unlock potential. I mean, most countries could do with more social, more social capital, more trust, more information. And we've got to do that together. You've got to get the flow going together for really to get those additional benefits. And Colin, last bit of advice. Oh, I think that uh, we actually know a lot. Uh, we have a lot. Uh, we can do a lot uh, more for ourselves. I think there's a tendency to look too much and too readily to outsiders. Uh, I think we can do a lot ourselves and then try to identify where the gaps are and then seek uh, that specific uh, input from outside. I think we've got to move on from where we were as uh, as nations. Pacific uh, Island communities do have a lot uh, to offer themselves. It's uh, it's ha- to try to work with what we have as opposed to always expecting uh, something from, from outside, set our own agenda and drive it forwards ourselves. We have a lot of skill and resources to move a lot of this uh, forwards. I think we've made a, 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 an excellent uh, start on climate change at the global level. I think mm. people didn't expect the Pacific Islands to have made the kind of impact they did in Paris. Mm. We've just got to keep that going and then apply what we've learned from that to things like uh, NCDs, uh, for example. So uh, believe in ourselves and do a lot more ourselves, I think. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion. We've covered a lot of ground, much like the Pacific itself. <laughs> uh, covered a lot of uh, a, a lot of topics and raised some very serious challenges and some opportunities as well. So, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for your contribution. Matt, thank you. Thank you, Meg. Thanks very much. Thank you, and Colin. Thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you. Welcome back and thanks once again to our guests for a really fascinating discussion. Jill, very briefly, what's your kind of key message that comes out of that? What resonated with you? Well, it's it feels like a cheat answer because the topic was regionalism in the Pacific, but I didn't realise just how committed these Pacific nations are to regionalism. And I find it fascinating because, and we touched on this uh, later in the interview with Meg, there is a real collective action problem here. Um, it's working together isn't easy. It's it's and it's not often rational to work together to solve problems. Often it's it makes more sense to go it alone. And so with something like fisheries, if every country dips into say the tuna who are uh, migrating from country to country, then there's not enough for everyone, and the and the fisheries will die. We call this the tragedy of the commons in game theory that. Uh, And it comes from the basis that if you have, say, a a common field in the middle of a town and everyone puts their cows on there, you know, in an unlimited kind of way, that the cows eat all the grass and then the commons are no good for anyone, right? The paddock's dried up and it's of no use to anyone. And the same could happen for the tuna fisheries. Now, these are really sticky problems. These are, you know, in some contexts insurmountable, but the Pacific Island nations and and the Secretariat of the Pacific Community are are working to get around all these problems. There's so much uh, good, I guess, so many good stories that are coming out of it that we don't talk about. We talk about the aid failures. We talk about, um, you know, government coups, these sorts of things, but we don't focus enough on the positives. Well, we certainly covered some of the positives today. So you've heard Jill's thoughts there. Listeners, what did you think of the discussion? Let us know. Send in your feedback, your questions, your comments, whatever you want to say. Um, Again, hit us up on Twitter, Apps Policy Forum. Join in the pod gang. Doing the gang sign again. I'm ignoring it again on uh, Policy Forum Pod on Facebook or send us an email podcast at policyforum.net. And if listening to today's discussion has whet your appetite for exploring development issues further, then perhaps you might want to check out one of Crawford's development policy degrees. You can find them at uh, crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study um, and just check out 
see what's on offer. But if you're a bit of a commitment phobe or if the idea of doing a master's or a PhD sounds a bit much, then uh, a much easier way to get your head around some of the issues playing out in the Pacific is to head over to Crawford's brilliant brilliant dev policy blog, which provides daily fresh aid and development analysis and research and policy comment covering Australia and the Pacific. You'll find them at devpolicy.org. Now, each week at the end of the podcast, we answer some of your questions, respond to some of your comments that have come in. And the first one I want to have a look at is a piece that was written by Kim Rubenstein, uh, which was called Stripping Away More Than Just a Citizenship. And it looked at the case of uh, Neil Prakash. And uh, Kim writes that no matter what the reason, stripping an Australian of the citizenship tarnishes the integrity of the rule of law. And uh, on Twitter, we asked the question, is the Australian constitution being undermined by a lack of clarity? And we had a comment from Reynard V on Twitter who said, no, it's because it's a 19th century load of rubbish. I think Reynard V is talking about the constitution there rather than uh, our our Twitter comment. Uh, It's a 19th century load of rubbish written by those with vested interests to cling to power. What do you reckon, Jill? Is the Australian constitution still fit for purpose? What a question. There's something to that, absolutely. Now, the problem of, of constitutional change and, you know, constantly updating constitutions is that uh, they reflect a certain period. They they might reflect a zeitgeist at, at any given time, uh, something that the Australian constitution has done very well and the, our Twitter commenter obviously doesn't agree with this is that it has been fairly robust. It's quite a short constitution. It's hard to change. It's not overly prescriptive. We don't have a Bill of Rights, which is uh, obviously highly controversial, but uh, it it sets out the basics, the very basics of how we run government in Australia. We have a world-class political system. Um, we, you know, export the way that we run democracy to a lot of places around the world and not in a kind of let's invade and then install democracy, but, you know, we help governments around the world uh, best manage their institutions. We're world leaders in this. It's something that we don't take much pride in because who really cares about executive procedure, for instance. But our constitution is the basis of that. I am quite conservative on this front. I think that if we start tinkering with things that um, we we will get unintended consequences. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's a fair argument that it's broke, though, right? This is the problem. And I absolutely... uh, you know, I absolutely accept that argument that there's a lot about our constitution that is out of date uh, and that is restrictively difficult to update given our uh, requirements for uh, constitutional amendment. But it's also pretty bloody good, you know, and, and on this case, I think, on this front, I think near enough is good enough. I also think that um, Kim Rubenstein is um, spot on with regard to her comments and that she's a brilliant ANU academic. It's a terrific piece and I would thoroughly recommend people giving it a read. The next one I want to talk about is last week's podcast on Australia's environmental performance where uh, uh, we spoke to three experts from the OECD about their recent uh, environmental performance review. It was very interesting to hear it actually being referred to in our in our interview today. Uh, on the podcast, the panel looked at uh, the sort of political tools that might be best used to steer the nation in the right direction and discuss the need for improvement and how to better inform and engage civil society in essential issues around environmental performance. And we had a comment from Mark Zanker on our brand new Facebook Policy Forum pod group. He's doing the gang sign. And Mark wrote, I found this depressing. I see little room for optimism. Uh, Most people forget things very quickly in the 24-7 news cycle. What worries me apart from the Darling River fish kills are the other catastrophes happening all around, like the dieback of over a thousand kilometre of mangroves in the Gulf of Carpentaria, the dieback of eucalypts in in the Monero that people like Charlie Massey are trying to recover from. No one sitting in an air-conditioned office in Canberra, as I did for 30 years as a public servant, can know anything unless they go out and look. Get down amongst the weeds, go and experience 50-degree temperatures uh, in on the Menindee to Puncari Road. I have, and it ain't pleasant. Also, the most impressive speech at Davos was given by Greta Thunberg. She speaks the truth. The house is on fire, and we are doing F all about it. 
What do you make of all of that, Jill? I mean, he's he's bang on. I try very hard to be optimistic. I'm a bit of a Pollyanna in a lot of senses. Um, I think with regard to climate change, I think with regard to declining trust in um, democracy, we these are the two things that are getting pretty hairy in terms of um, getting to the point of, of, of get, getting to the point where we won't be able to return. Um, and I don't see, like Mark, um, much room for optimism in our political responses to climate change and, and to environmental degradation generally in Australia. Uh, I talked about this last week in the interview with the uh, the guys from the OECD that there are very very um, intensely competing incentives here. One is for protecting future generations from environmental disaster and one is to get re-elected in the next three years. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm in no way suggesting that we get rid of our electoral cycle, that, you know, we, we stop having elections, but we see this come out in opinion polling that particularly people from sort of 20 to 40 in Australia who otherwise have very moderate views are more inclined to say, let's get rid of elected governments and put in someone who can get stuff done. So I find these issues really, really closely related and I don't know what to do about it. And you were actually involved in some research along those lines, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, run quite a few big survey projects on behalf of the ANU and we are regularly finding, uh, recently I released the Australian Values Survey and then we're in the process at the moment of preparing data to release for what's called the uh, Asian Barometer Survey and we're finding in each of these that uh, people are people in Australia who we would normally expect to be uh, fervent supporters of democracy, and they still are on most fronts, but are increasingly likely to say it's okay just to have a strong arm leader, maybe for a little while. Maybe we should listen to more experts than to politicians. Now, this is a fundamental problem because once we start losing trust and losing our belief that our elected representatives do actually represent us in some way, that they can go off to Canberra, turn up in Parliament, and we can delegate our trust in them to make good decisions, then the kinds of skeletons of democracy start to break apart. And I don't know what underpins that without it. Now, there are you know plenty of political scientists around the world who are really catastrophizing this. I think it's, well, you know, I, I, I don't like to sort of prescribe an answer, but if politicians kind of got their head out of the sand and actually start to respond on issues like climate change, you, we will start to see that trust restored. But at the moment, there's a strong sense that uh, policy is driven by the electoral cycle. It's a sense, it's a, an attitude and a belief that is borne out with a lot of policy evidence. Um, there's a way out of it, but it's not easy. It'll be very interesting to see how it plays out over the next few months. So, Mark, thank you so much for that comment. Really nicely thought through and and and, and well expressed. It gave us lots to talk about here. Um, the third and final thing I want to touch on is over the last couple of weeks, across our various social media platforms, we've been reaching out to get some suggestions and ideas about things that we might cover on future podcasts. You can jump onto the Facebook group and let us know your thoughts. And we've had some really excellent suggestions so far. And I just want to go over a couple of those. Victoria Taylor on Twitter said that we should look at the tension between private and public good in managing natural resources. I think that's very topical in light of the Royal Commission uh, into the Murray-Darling Basin. So thanks for that, Victoria. James wrote to us and said that we should have a look at the issue of electric vehicles in Australia in light of the Senate report last week. I absolutely love that idea and I'd be keen on doing something on policy around self-driving vehicles too. I think that's a policy minefield. And Mark uh, Mark Zanker again on our Facebook group suggested we do a pod looking at the sometimes conflicting messages that come out from experts where, for example, some economists might promote, as he says, developing oil and gas reserves for economic development while climate scientists are just to reduce CO2 emissions. I really like that idea about conflicting ideas and uh, distrust of experts. It makes me think of that Michael Gove comment about how people have had enough of experts. What do you reckon, Jill? Any of those ideas take your fancy? Well, often I've had enough of experts and I think that's uh, it hits on something really important, right? That there's not one right 
suggestion or, or right solution to any problem. Um, and something that I love about the pod is that we get people on who disagree and who look at things from a different perspective. Today, Matt Dornan is looking at things from the perspective of an, econ- of, of an economist and uh, Meg is looking at things from the perspective of someone who's worked in government, who's interested in uh, regional security issues. It's fascinating and it, it's tough. It's really tough. You have to get down in the weeds and coming up with the best solution to anything um, is sometimes easier if you don't ask es- experts. So it's, uh, it's uh, well, it's another minefield, isn't it? And I think that'd be a great uh, podcast topic. Well, we really appreciate those ideas and please do keep coming in. They are not, dare I say, academic in nature. It's not theoretical. We are genuinely looking at them and thinking about how we might cover those in future podcasts. So this is a really good opportunity for you to have an influence on the topics and ideas and issues that we cover. And I want to say a huge thank you again to everyone who has commented and reminder to keep sending those comments in. That includes uh, uh, suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, join our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group, or just drop us a line on email podcast at policyforum.net. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, then can I ask a little favour? Could you please share it with someone who hasn't yet heard us? We really appreciate all the support that our fantastic listeners give us, and the more we can get the word out about the pod, the better. So we'll be back with another Policy Forum pod next week, but until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Jill Shepard, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.